evidence and answers. Americans love to go to the movies. Storylines fall into every genre you can imagine. Everything from action adventure to love stories, mystery and drama. Recently, another best-selling book was made into film, and people all over are talking about it. The movie is The Shack. The story has inspired millions. But how does it stack up against the Word of God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat is providing us with a critique of the movie, The Shack. Many say it is such an inspiration, so Pat will examine it. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's our host, Pat Zucaran, with part one of his critique of the movie, The Shack. The New York Times bestseller, The Shack, by William Young, has been made into a movie starring Sam Worthington, Octavia Spencer, and Tim McGraw. Eugene Peterson, professor emeritus of spiritual theology at Regent College in Vancouver, writes, the book has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress did for his. It's that good. Many Christians say that the book and the movie has blessed them, and they have never felt more closer to God than after reading the book and seeing the movie. However, others have said that this book presents false doctrines that are heretical and dangerous. The diversity of comments and questions about the book and movie created a need to research and present a biblical critique of this work. Now, William Young creatively writes a fiction story that seeks to answer the difficult question of why God allows evil and suffering in the world. And in this story, the main character, Mackenzie Allen Phillips, a father of five children, experiences the unthinkable, painful tragedy of losing his youngest daughter to a violent murder at the hands of a serial killer. Through his painful ordeal, he asks the questions, how could God allow something like this to happen? And where was God in all this? Well, one day in the midst of his great depression, he receives an invitation to meet God at the shack where his daughter was molested and killed. There he meets God the Father who appears as a large African-American woman named Papa. God the Son, who appears as a Middle Eastern man in a leather tool belt, and God the Holy Spirit, who appears as an Asian woman named Sarayu. In this place, over the course of a few days, Mac asks each member of the triune God difficult questions about life, eternity, the nature of God, evil, and other significant issues with which every person struggles in our lifetime. And through several dialogues with each member of this trinity, Mac receives answers, and through these answers we learn about the nature of God and the problem of suffering and evil. Now, there are many commendable features of the novel and the movie. The Shack creatively addresses a relevant and difficult issue of God and the problem of evil. Young answers the problem of God and evil with the free will argument, which is a valid argument, and it states that God created people with the free will to obey or disobey his commands. And God must allow that freedom in order for us to be truly free and to enter into a love relationship with him 
which requires freedom. But freedom also has the potential for evil, and man can use his freedom to commit tremendous acts of evil. And God allows man that freedom, but also with that, we must suffer the consequences of some of the horrific decisions that we made. But in the end, God will one day judge all mankind and bring evil to an end. Young also emphasizes that God has an ultimate plan for our lives, which cannot be overcome even by acts of evil. And as humans, we are limited and finite creatures who cannot see all things and how they fit together or how even evil events might somehow fulfill God's ultimate plan. God is good and God is love. Therefore, what he allows is filtered through his love and infinite wisdom. And God permits individuals to exercise their free will, even if they choose to go against his commands. And in his love, he does not impose his will on us. And when we choose to do evil, these actions not only hurt others, but hurt him deeply. And often we cannot understand events that happen in our lives. However, we are asked to trust God even when we cannot see or comprehend why he allows things to happen. In fact, Young points out that taking away our free will would not be the best thing for God to do. And I believe Young does a decent job of tackling the difficult issue of evil and answering it in a creative way through his fiction novel. He does attempt to answer a very difficult question in a creative way that many will find engaging. Young also emphasizes the intimate relationship we are to have with God. There is a danger that a believer's faith becomes very cerebral and neglects the emotional, the heart aspect of our walk with God. A faith that is only centered on knowing doctrine can be a cold kind of faith. One of the rebukes in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 on the seven churches, the church of Ephesus, John the Apostle writes, he commends the church of many good things that they have done. But in verse 4 he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. One of the faults, the major fault of the church of Ephesus is that they had lost their first love. So indeed, there is a danger of a cerebral or, or just a head kind of Christianity that focuses on what we believe and doctrine and misses the emotional or the heart, surrendering one's heart in a love relationship with Christ. Now, those are some of the commendable aspects of the novel and the movie, but here are some concerns that I have regarding the book. Now, I commend Young for attempting to wrestle with a difficult issue in a creative manner, and Young is not a trained theologian or a Bible scholar, and he wrote this book, and what motivated him to write this book was for the purpose of sharing his experience and insight as he worked through his own personal tragedy in his life. He does attempt to be orthodox in his theology, but there are some apparent errors here. I do not doubt his sincerity or his relationship with God. I believe he's a brother in Christ, and it's my goal to present an accurate, fair biblical critique of his work. Now, in seeking to address the issue of God and the problem of evil, the author presents what I believe is a flawed theological view that confuses the nature of God. 
One of my concerns is the emphasis on experience and how it is given equal or stronger emphasis over the Bible. Young refers to the Bible superficially. However, his primary focus in this work is on experience. In fact, he unfortunately makes some critical remarks regarding the sole authority of the word and the training needed to interpret it properly. He writes, quote, in seminary, he had been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in a box, just in a book. And throughout the book, he seems to criticize biblical teachings as, quote, religious conditioning or seminary teaching. Young's intention may be to encourage the audience to break stereotypes in their thinking about God, and this is commendable, for we must constantly examine our theology of God and evaluate whether we have adopted false stereotypes in our understanding of God. It may not have been the author's intent to devalue the Word of God or theological training. However, I believe comments like these throughout the movie and the novel give that impression and we must be very cautious not to devalue Scripture, for that is the final authority in a believer's life, not experience. Our theology, our beliefs, our experience all must be evaluated and must be consistent with God's Word. God will not reveal Himself or communicate in ways that are contrary to His Word. God is not limited to, quote, words on a page. He also communicates through his creation or general revelation, according to Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 19. However, God has given us special revelation and communicated specific truths about his character and his commands in his word. If God reveals and communicates information that is contrary to what he has written in his word, then he could not be the God of truth. There are truths that are not mentioned in the Bible. But those facts, you know, such as truth in science or about the world around us that we can learn through experience, but those facts should be consistent and not contrary to the Word of God. So it was unfortunate that there were more critical remarks made on biblical training and not a stronger emphasis to study and exhort believers to be diligent students of the Word. Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul writes again in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God. So it's literally the word of God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul exhorts us to test all things. Hold on to that which is good. We're not to believe all prophecies or all, quote, visions that come. We're to test them all. How do we test them? Well, we test them according to the Word of God. So the Word of God is supreme. It's the supreme authority. It communicates God's special revelation. And it is the authority for interpreting doctrine and truth in the believer's life. Second, 
Young presents several incorrect and confusing teachings regarding the nature of God and salvation. In this story, God the Father appears as a large African-American woman named Papa. Now, in contrast, the Bible teaches that God never takes on, God the Father never takes on physical form. John 4.24 teaches that God is spirit. 1 Timothy 4.16 states, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To add to this, God appears as a woman named Papa. It is true that God is neither male nor female, as humans are, and both feminine and masculine attributes are found in God. However, in the Bible, God has chosen to reveal himself as Father and never in the feminine gender. This gender distortion confuses the nature of God. And in the story, God the Father has scars on his wrists. This is contrary to biblical teachings in which only Jesus became human and only Jesus died on the cross. It is true the Father shared in the pain of Christ's suffering, but God stood as the judge of sin, not the one who suffered on the cross. Christ bore the burden of our sins. God the Father was the judge who had to render his judgment on the Son. God the Father says, When we three spoke ourselves into human existence as the Son of God, we became fully human. Well, Young teaches that all three members of the Trinity became human. However, the scriptures teach that only the Son, not all the members of the Trinity, became human. And this distorts the uniqueness and teachings of the incarnation of Christ. Then we have some confusion regarding the nature of the Son. In this story, Jesus appears as a Middle Eastern man with a plaid shirt, jeans, and a tool belt. In the Bible, Jesus appears as a humble servant, veiling his glory, as described in Philippians chapter 2. After the resurrection, though, Jesus retains his human nature and body, but is revealed in glory and full heavenly majesty. He appears in his glorified and resurrected body, and his glory is unveiled. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees the resurrected Jesus in his glory. It says, I saw someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. So that is the stunning, awesome, resurrected Jesus Christ in his full glory. Now, as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus retained his divine nature and attributes. His incarnation involved the addition of humanity, not the subtraction of his deity or his divine attributes. During his incarnation, he chose to withhold, hold back, restrict his use of his divine attributes. But there were occasions in which he exercised his divine attributes to demonstrate his authority over every realm of creation. However, in the shack, God says, although he is also fully God, he has never drawn upon his nature as God to do anything. He has only lived out his relationship with me, living in the very same manner that I desire to be in a relationship with every human being. He is just the first to do it to the uttermost. 
the first to absolutely trust my life within him, the first to believe in my love and my goodness without regard for appearance or consequence. So when he healed the blind, he did so as a dependent, limited human being, trusting my life and power to be at work within him and through him. Jesus, as a human being, had no power within himself to heal anyone. Well, first, it is not true that Jesus had no power within himself to heal anyone. Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, never ceased being God. He continued to possess full and complete deity before, during, and after his resurrection. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. He did do miracles, and all that he did was in 100% agreement and submission to God the Father, and he did miracles in the power of the Spirit, and he also exercised his own power. In John chapter 2, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it from the dead. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. So it appears that young is teaching an incorrect view of the incarnation of Christ, that somehow he gave up an aspect or parts of his deity when he became human. When indeed, when he became human, he was still 100% God with all the attributes of God. He just added human limitations to that and freely withheld from the exercise of those divine attributes. But he did not lose them in any way and lived in complete obedience to God so that all he did was in complete obedience. And there's confusion regarding the Holy Spirit. In this story, the Holy Spirit appears as an Asian woman named Saruya. Now, in contrast, the Holy Spirit never appears as a physical person in the body. There is one time when the Spirit appears in physical form as a dove at the baptism of Jesus. Moreover, the Spirit is never addressed in the feminine but is always addressed with a masculine pronoun. For example, in John chapter 14, when Jesus prophesies of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he, was, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Another means of same nature. All right? He says, the Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So throughout the Bible, just as God the Father, the Holy Spirit takes on the masculine pronouns. Now, there is also confusion regarding the nature of the Trinity. The first inaccuracy regarding the Trinity is that in this story, all three members of the Trinity take on human form. This confuses the doctrine of the Incarnation, for Scripture teaches that it's only Jesus or God the Son who takes on human form. The second inaccuracy presented in the shack is the idea that the relationship taught between the members of the Trinity is incorrect. In the book, God says, so you think that God must relate inside a hierarchy like you do, but we do not. Young teaches that all three members of the Trinity do not relate in a hierarchical manner. Now, in contrast, the Bible teaches that all three members of the Trinity are equal in nature. There exists an economy or a hierarchy in the Trinity. It describes the relationship of the members of the Godhead with each other. And this relationship serves as a model for us. The Father is the head. 
And this is demonstrated in that the Father sent the Son. The Son does not send the Father. The Father sends the Son. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus said, I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. In John 16, verse 7, then it is the Son who sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father, John 6, 38. So the Father is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, The head of every woman is the man. The head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 through 28, speaks of creation being in subjection to Jesus. And then verse 28, Jesus will be subjected to the Father. It states, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The Greek word for will be subjected is in the future passive indicative. This means that it is a future event where Jesus will forever be subjected to the Father. These passages teach that there is indeed a hierarchy or an economy within the Trinity in which all three members are equal in nature, yet the principle of headship and submission is perfectly displayed in the Trinity. This critical theological principle is incorrectly taught in the shack. Then there's confusion regarding salvation. In this story, Young appears to be teaching what we call pluralism. This is the belief that there are other ways to salvation besides faith in Christ alone. In this story, God the Father, who appears as a large African-American woman named Papa, states, Those who love me come from every system that exists. There are Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning religious institutions. I have followers who are murderers and many who are self-righteous. Some are bankers and bookies, Americans and Iraqis, Jews and Palestinians. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into my brothers and sisters into my beloved. Young states that Jesus, here speaking, has no desire to make people of other faiths Christians or disciples of Christ. So we're left to wonder what this transformation into sons and daughters of my Papa really entails. What does it mean to be a son or daughter of Papa? Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Being a disciple of Christ requires us to know and obey the teachings that God has revealed to us in His Word and to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. 
evidence and answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including Pat's books, additional articles, and audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share it with your family, your friends, and of course, your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.